Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn over to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 14 in our time together this morning. Um, I would just uh, like to maybe follow up a little bit on what Tim was saying today. I hope um, back, back on Easter, uh, my wife and I and our, some of our children stood at the graveside of my father and mother. My mom's been gone phew, almost 30 years. It's hard to believe. And um, I, had a, I had a great mom and dad. And I would just say, if yours are still alive, love them. They may not be perfect. None of us are. But I hope you'll take opportunities to thank God for, for your parents. I came from a, child, a, a family with eight children. And... Um, so we had one of those old, I don't know if you remember those old station wagons. They weren't real big. But, and, you know, you, know you, you think now, like, with car seats, like, you have to have a car seat till you're 15, right? Now, I, or it, almost, it seems that way, right? And if you're a little guy, you're going to have a car seat forever. But um, back then, they would just, we would just all pile into the back of the station wagon. You know, there would be, like, four fink binders, but no seat belts, nothing, no seats, just... You know, I, I don't know. I, I guess it was illegal. I don't know if it was illegal, but we just did it. But one of the downsides was um, with that many kids that you could sometimes get forgotten. And uh, in this sense that we would go to church or we would go to a store, and if you got away from the group, everybody would hop in the car and they would be gone and you'd be there left all by yourself. Um, and that happened to me several times. <laughs> And I, I still remember that feeling as a six or seven-year-old of thinking, I'll never see my parents again. Now, I mean, you know, they're eventually going to remember when supper time comes or something and come back and get you. But, 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 but I remember having that experience as a young child, being home alone has nothing over church alone, you know, being left at church or at a store or something like that. So... I, I just, I, I, but I remember as a young child, just that, that fear of being abandoned and maybe never see my parents again and, and all those unrealistic but nonetheless true feelings. Fast forward. At the end of junior high and beginning of high school, I lived uh, in Sao Paulo, Brazil. My dad was transferred down there with a company, Ford Motor Company for two years to work on a plant. And um, they were some of the darkest times of my life. And, and yet, times that God deeply used. But I, I remember I went through a season in my life where I entertained all kinds of doubts and fears and questions, not about whether my parents would ever come back or whatever, but about my very relationship with God. Like, did I, did I have a relationship with God? What is more important than that? I, I, and I remember times, and, and I, you know, I, I was eighth and ninth grade. Boy, you don't share that with anybody, right? You just kind of internalize the whole thing. And I remember there were times I'd get off the bus after basketball practice and have to walk down the city street several blocks to get home, I remember just kind of walking down there and just thinking, if you can't have God, what's life even worth? 
And how can I know if I know him? How can I know who he is? I, just all these doubts. You know, at that age, you, 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 you doubt your doubts. You question your questions. You, you, you just, you spin, right? You spin. And it was a very, very dark time. And yet a time that God brought me out of it in some really miraculous, wonderful ways. And it's not identical to that. But it's something like that when we come to John 14. Um, Jesus has been with his men for three and a half years. They, they have had a face-to-face relationship. And, and now he's going to be leaving. And, and, and they're, they're going to come to that whole experience with a whole series of questions. Because they don't quite understand it. The, the, the transition and what he's... I mean, Jesus has said he's going to die and resurrect, but what, 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 what did the disciples hear? Right over their head. They didn't hear a blooming thing. Just, just went all over them. And, and you come to John chapter 14, and I love those first few words there in John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. These guys are troubled. We often are troubled in our relationship with God, aren't we? We carry doubts and fears and uncertainties and wonder about a whole series of things. And and, and Jesus comes, and in answering their question, and preparing them for the way it would be for them, he prepares us for the way it is with us. Do you see that? So, So when we read this, don't just think of them. Think of what he's doing with us. And what you'll find, we're going to come through this passage and we're just going to, we want to get, I want to, we just want to bring the worship team back up and just start singing again. It's so glorious when you think of what our Lord has done. Now, what's interesting in this passage, shouldn't surprise us, is that there's a whole series of questions that are going to be asked and answered in this passage. Matter of fact, the first one actually came out of last week's sermon when James was actually preaching. But don't you love Peter? One of the things I love about Peter in the scriptures is Peter asks the questions you and I are all thinking about but are afraid to ask. But not Peter, man. Man, he just asks it. And, and there in the passage from last week from, from John chapter 13, in the midst of this, Jesus gives this new commandment about loving one another. And wouldn't you think that that's what he'd be thinking about? But... but What happens instead is right before that, Jesus said, um, little children, you shall seek me. As as I said to the Jews, I say now also unto you, where I am going, you cannot come. I will be with you only for a little while longer. And then Jesus launches into this new commandment I give you. And Peter's thinking, only going to be with us a little bit longer? Where are you going? What is happening here? So, So Peter turns over and says, Lord... Where are you going? And Jesus says, Peter, you, you can't come with me right now, but, but you'll follow later. In other words, I'm on a mission of dying for the world and resurrecting and going on high, all these things. Peter, there's a plan for you, but I've got to do that alone. And of course, that's when Peter says, no, Lord, I want to come with you right now and do everything you're doing. Jesus says, you're not ready and Peter says, yeah, I am. Actually, you're going to deny me three times. Right? 
And, and in chapter 14, Jesus returns to that issue of, I'm going away. And, 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 and the disciples are thinking like, what, 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 what about us? Do you see? Listen to what he says. John chapter 14. Let me just read verses 1 to 3. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. But if it were not so, if it, if it was not so, I would have told you, because I go to prepare a place for you. And if I should go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again, and will receive you to myself in order that where I am, you may be also. This, if you've been to many funerals, this is one of those passages people often preach on at a funeral, and you, you can see why. But here, to G, when Jesus gives the answer, I love what he says. And, and, and I don't know where I picked this up, but years ago, I heard somebody preach on this, it wasn't Tim or James. It was somebody else, no doubt. They would never have said this. Um, and, and the preacher said something like this. They said, Jesus went to heaven to prepare a place for us. And can you imagine how beautiful those mansions and those rooms are going to look at? Because he's been working on them for 2,000 years. Do you ever hear people say that? Now, I want to take that apart a little bit. Because there's a problem with that. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. And it does. It does picture in antiquity what would often happen if I, had, if I was a wealthy person and I had a lot of children, each of my children would come and we would just kind of add on to my house and we, we would just make it bigger and bigger and bigger so I could take all the family in there. I get it. That's, that's the picture here. But there's nothing deficient with God's house, is there? I mean, do you think Jesus would have to go in to heaven and say, wow, this place is like the shop, right? It needs a lot of work. <laughs> I mean, do you really think God's house is that way? Like there's something deficient in God's house? Oh, folks, that's not the point at all. When Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, it would be something more like me telling you this. Phil? You and your wife are going to a resort in Bermuda. And I am going to prepare the resort for you guys. Now, do I have to do anything to those rooms down there? Nope. They are all ready to go. But Phil needs some money. And Phil needs a plane ride. And a taxi. And food while he's there. And money. You see, so... Who am I really preparing for the resort? I'm preparing Phil. And when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, in my Father's houses are many rooms. This is the point. God has more than enough room for all of us. There's many, many rooms. God wants all kinds of people to come into that house. Do you see that? And what I'm going to do is not go and demolish one of those rooms and redo it. 
I, as your Lord and Savior, if you've trusted me, will intercede before the Father so you can fully come into everything God wants for you. Do you see the difference? He is preparing you for that if you know him. Isn't that beautiful? These guys are unsettled in their heart. You're going away. Where are you going anyway? I can't follow. I'm going to deny you. What, what, what? I mean, they're troubled. And Jesus says, you can just trust me because I'm going and I will prepare in such a way that when you get there, you will be welcomed with open arms because I will intercede and prepare the way for you. You know, as a 14-year-old who was very, very unsettled about his relationship with God, to get a hold of a truth like that brought peace to my soul. Doesn't it? I can't get to you. (laughs) I know you were never meant to get to God. God, as we've said many times, came to us. He came to these men. He died for these men. That was his way back, his death, burial, resurrection. And he would go back there and he would make sure that you get from there to here because not only does the Father want everybody to come, many rooms. Those that accept Christ will be prepared when they get there. Isn't that beautiful? Look what he goes on to say, verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I love this. Watch this, folks. This is too good. This is too good. I am coming again and will receive you to myself in order that where I am, you may be also. What is it that makes heaven heaven? Is it all the stuff? Or is it that Jesus says, I am coming so that you can be with me forever. So what do you say to these guys that are unsettled about, Lord, what about where you're going? You can rest in me. You can rest because I will prepare the way for you to enter into this open invitation of heaven from God. And one day, I'll come back and I'll get you. And I'll take you there. You know, my parents always came back to pick me up. Eventually. <laughs> Eventually. I don't think I ever waited more than an hour, if I can remember correctly. I don't think it was ever more than an hour. But they made a mistake. Jesus isn't making a mistake. He knows the perfect timing of when to come back and take us to himself. Now, in the midst of saying all that, look at verse 4, where Jesus says, and where I am going to, you know the way. <laughs> and these guys are still struggling with all this, okay? So, so Thomas is thinking, okay, you're gone somewhere, and we know the way. Now, now I want you to think about that a second. If I tell you this afternoon I'm going somewhere, and you know the way. 
Doesn't that assume that you know the place so that you know the way to get there? Doesn't that make sense? And so Thomas is hearing this, and look at what he says. I love it. I mean, you've got to love Thomas, verse 5. Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going to. How can we possibly know the way? Um, like, we're not connecting on this whole thing. So if we don't know where you're going, there ain't no way we're going to know the way. And here's what I love about it. What you're going to find in this passage is that Jesus envelops everything. And so Jesus looks back at him. Not only is he going to go to prepare, not only is he going to come back and take you, but I want you to know something else. The only way you can ever get there is because of him, because he says probably one of the most popular verses, uh, verse 6. Jesus responds to him and says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You ever hear that verse before? But you see what he's saying now? You know how they have terms in our day like, that person is a racist, a sexist. I suppose you could say that Christianity, according to the Bible, would that make you like a a religionist? I don't know what term they even use. Do they use that term? If not, they probably will. But what that would mean is, well, you're saying it's only your way. Uh, yes. Jesus is saying, as glorious as heaven is, with a father with open arms that says, come, 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 there's only one way to get there. It's not through Buddha. It's not through Muhammad. It's not through Nirvana. It's not through your own effort. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Jesus says, I am the way. There is no other way to experience truth, life, but to come through me. It's the only way to get to the Father. So Thomas, when Thomas says, so Lord, how can we know the way? (laughs) I am the way, Thomas. You know me. That's all you need. It's all you need. Look at what he says at the end of that discussion, at the end of verse 7. In verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Now, at one level you read that and you say, that, what's going on there? Don't you feel that a little bit when you read that? I mean, you should. Because sometimes what Jesus does in this thing he answers a question but he says something else at the back end that makes them ask another question and and that's exactly what happens here again so so i'm the way the truth and the life thomas if you've seen me you've seen the father well philip's listening to all this and so now he has a comment to make in verse eight philip said to him uh, Lord, show the Father to us and it is enough. <laughs> I mean, they're hearing this stuff and they're thinking like, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Like, wh- wh- what does that all mean? And he must be thinking, oh, 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 oh. Like Moses in the Old Testament had that time when like God passed by. And Elijah had that time when, when, when God passed by as he was, as in the cleft of the rock. Maybe that's what he's talking about. 
Philip says, Jesus, can we have one of those? <laughs> yeah, wouldn't you love to see Jesus' face through these things? I mean, here's some of you going like, how did I pick these 12? You know, I, whatever. I, uh, how do you end up with us? Okay, it's all, it's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. So, so but, but he's just wondering about this whole, and, and here's the other beauty of it. If you don't know the Father, you have no hope. But there's only one way to know the Father, and that is through the Son. And Jesus then looks back at him and, I said, and says this. Look, look, look. You, oh, let me read, let me read, verse 9. I love it. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so much time, and yet you have not known me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How are you saying, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words which I give to you, I don't speak from myself, but the Father who abides in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, but if not, believe because of the works themselves. So, so again, here's the crazy thing, folks. Here's the crazy thing. If you go back and you start reading in John chapter 1, and you read all the way up to John chapter 14, you will find out repeatedly, both by the author of the book and by Jesus himself, they keep saying again and again, Jesus Christ is God who has become a man, and the God-man gives us the greatest revelation of the Father that you will ever receive. I mean, from the get-go, you read that all the way through. And here's Jesus ready to leave, and, and Philip is saying, hey, could... Could you show us the Father? (laughs) What has been happening for three and a half years? Are you kidding me? You have seen God in flesh. Telling you the only way to God is through him. He becomes part. He raised himself into our story so we can become part of his story. That's the way it always works. And Jesus says, I want you to look at my earthly ministry. And you know what you'll see? You will see time and time and time again that everything I do is the Father's will. I fully love the Father. I'm united with the Father. As deity, I'm equal with the Father. But as a son, I'm submissive to him. All that, all that, all that stuff. He says all those things. And he says, what happens throughout my ministry is there's these miraculous activities that accompany my words and what I'm doing. And that's the father that's basically saying again and again, believe my son who is the revelation of me. Does that make sense? Look at my earthly ministry. And that's what you'll see. You know what I love? They were merely asking the question, Hey, can we have one of those, like, visions of God? (laughs) And Jesus says, you have something far better than a vision. You have God in the flesh before you. Do you see? But he doesn't end there, folks. He doesn't just talk about his earthly ministry in which the Father validates the Son again and again. 
But he says this in verse 12. Truly, I say to you, the one believing in me, the works which I am doing, he will do also, and he will do greater works. I have to tell you, that expression, if you take out 10 commentaries, you'll probably get 11 interpretations. What in the world does that mean? Because he doesn't just talk about his earthly ministry. He's going to talk about what he's doing now, folks. And he says, those that believe in me will do greater works than what you see right now. Does, does that set you back? Like, what's that mean? Do you mean individually, Doug Finkbeiner, qualitatively, will do greater works than Jesus Christ did when he came the first time? What's the ultimate act of God in John's gospel? It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Will Doug Finkbeiner ever do that? Nope. So whatever this verse means, it can't mean I'll do things at a quality level far better than him. No. Ah. Maybe it means quantitatively. And some, some scholars have gone this way. And what they said, look, one guy can only do so many miracles, you know? But after Christ leaves and we're here, we can do more than him, right? So quantitatively, we can do more than Jesus did. That kind of sounds good on the surface, but here's the problem with it. The verse doesn't say we will do greater works. It says the one who believes in Jesus will. That's an individual. Do you think there's anybody living today that has done more miraculous works than Jesus Christ did when he was here on earth. I'd say no. Remember what John goes on to say at the end of his book? If all the things of Jesus Christ were written down, all the books on earth could not contain those things. So it's not qualitative. It's not, da-da, come to see what Doug Finkbeiner can do. It's not that. Hey, look how much we can do. Not that. I would argue that Jesus is distinguishing between what we call his earthly ministry and his exalted ministry now through us. In, in the same way, um, and so the fancy term for this, you'll never remember, but I'll throw it out, that this isn't about being, this is not qualitative, quantitative, it's salvation historical. And what that means is that you are going from Jesus' earthly ministry to his exalted ministry, and what the people of God will experience now in some sense exceeds what Jesus did then. Well, well, how? You know what the difference is? Jesus has come through the death, burial, and resurrection. There's this really interesting verse in Matthew 11 where Jesus is talking to the crowds about John the Baptist and Jesus says, of all those born of women, 
Nobody has been born that is greater than John the Baptist. And then he makes this really interesting statement. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And you go to yourself like, really? Like John the Baptist is greater than all the prophets before him? There's a lot of really good prophets there. And who can I pick on here? (laughs) John, a beloved brother in Christ. John, oh, and John, this doesn't quite work because your name's the same. But anyway, okay. John is greater than John the Baptist, who is greater than all the prophets that came before him. How is that true of John? Is it because John's character or my character, your character is so much deeper than John the Baptist's? Now, you know what the difference is? God has moved on to give us this full, complete gospel story, folks. What what they were fuzzy on, John the Baptist was better on, but John and us are much clearer now on where the whole thing goes. Death, burial, resurrection, exaltation of Jesus Christ. Do you see? And so when Jesus says, the least in the kingdom is greater than he, it's because of where we stand in salvation history. We're on this side of Pentecost, not that side of Pentecost. The Spirit has come. Jesus is exalted. He wants his word to go out to the nations with clarity. And you will do greater works. And don't just think miraculous things. Think of a changed life. Think of a loving Christian community. Think of people who are praying and being transformed. It's all those kinds of things. All right, Finkbinder, where do you get that from the text? I'll show you. It's a good question because I didn't finish reading. He will do greater works and everything you find at the end of verse 12 and verse 13 are the reasons why we will do greater works. Because I am going to the Father. Do you see that? When Jesus goes to the Father through the death, burial, and resurrection, he's now in this exalted position where he intercedes for us constantly. You will do greater works because I am now the exalted Lord and you can take forth my gospel and you can preach it with passion and conviction and my spirit will come upon you and you guys will live and love in a way that the world can't understand and in doing all of that, greater works will be done. People will be brought into the kingdom. People will be transformed in a way that you can't possibly imagine. It's because I am the exalted Lord who is working through you. Do you see that? It tells us something else. Not just because of Jesus' authoritative position, but because of our access to him. Verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. In order that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, you got to work with this one a little bit, don't you? Because on the, on the surface of that, that sounds like a pretty good deal. I love Alexis. Could I have Alexis? And I would like a bow. <laughs> uh, whatever. You, you know, I mean, is that what he's saying? No. He's saying, my people that are committed to my mission, 
I stand as the exalted Lord before the Father interceding for you. I'm the King of kings and Lord of lords. You come to me and you say, God, I don't know what to say to my neighbor. I don't know how to approach that family member. I keep blowing it in my life. I don't know what to do. I'm not a good husband. I'm not a good father. I'm I'm struggling. You just bring it, don't you? Because what I want is you to work through me doing works that only you can do in ways that will transform the world around me. That's, That's a good prayer, folks. That's a good prayer. But the greater works are not bound up in, hey, look at Finkbinder. He's he's pretty good at blank. (laughs) Look at Jesus. He's the exalted Lord who can do anything. And when we come to him and say, use me, he does. In ways that we often won't ever imagine until we get to heaven itself. That's a good picture, isn't it, folks? So I was thinking about all this. What do you tell people whose hearts are troubled? There's unrest. You tell them about Jesus. Because if they don't know him, they will never find their way to God any other way. But you can tell them Jesus is the way. Yeah, yeah, I know that. I know he's the way. But man, I still sin and struggle. You're right. You're right. But he's the exalted Lord who is transforming you through his spirit and interceding if Satan ever appears before God and says, hey, did you see Finkbeiner yesterday? (laughs) Jesus says, yes, he's mine. He's united to me. He's been totally forgiven because of what I did for him on the cross. He accepted me. Do you see? And, and so, so this passage reaches us wherever we are. It takes troubled hearts, people that don't know Christ. It takes troubled hearts, people that do know Christ. Lord, I don't know what to do. And Jesus says, I intercede for you. You're walking with me. I'm coming back for you one day. And until I do come back, you can do things that go beyond what you could possibly imagine because I, as the exalted Lord, am working through you. Now, folks, that will handle any unrest in your soul, won't it? So rest in Jesus. Wherever you are, whatever troubles you, rest in Jesus. He's the way. He's the destiny. He's the guarantee. He's coming back. And he'll use me till he does. Father, this is just such a rich text. I, I, don't even, I don't even know how to expound it in a way that fully touches its depths. But I pray your spirit would touch us wherever we need to be touched this day. Perhaps it's a troubled soul here today that's never trusted in Jesus Christ. There is only one way, and it is him. Father, will you you work in their heart? 
Will you call them to yourself? May they respond. And Father, for my brothers and sisters here today, not perfect people, but forgiven people, forgiven because of Jesus Christ, will you calm their troubled hearts with whatever ails them? That you are the exalted Lord who constantly is accessible in prayer, who intercedes for us, who's in the process of transforming us, who wants to use us in ways that go beyond our imagination. And one day is coming back for us. Rest us. Make, let, us be, let us be people who can rest in Christ and in Christ alone. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.